FCR 247, you're live in the mix. I'm your host, Twism White Peace. And today, man, I have got this fantastic entertainment and music, yet scientific. My God, it's just a whole conglomerate of what the is going to happen today. So without further ado, I want to introduce to you author, music publicist of Prince, Billy Joel, Bob Marley, Michael Jackson, Sticks. Man, his area of expertise is what we're going to go ahead and call mass behavior. From the mass behavior of corks to the mass behavior of human beings, I introduce to you none other than Mr. Howard Bloom. Mr. Bloom, how are you today? Thanks. We're doing extremely well. Thank you. That's good. I'm glad to hear that. And of course, you uh, <laughs> you come with a mouthful. Like uh, you, when, when somebody introduces you, you come with a mouthful. So. I, I, I got to know real quick, what's it like, uh, if I read correctly, it was uh, 545 different radio stations? Was that yeah, correct? I, yes, I'm going on in about six hours tonight. Um, actually, I guess nine hours tonight, 545 radio stations. I'm on the highest rated overnight talk radio show in North America, coast to coast. And I'm on once a week, usually on Wednesdays. That's great. So, so what's it like to be on both sides? I mean, it's it's an interesting world we live in nowadays. So, oh, that's for sure. What it's like is, uh, if you look at the politics and how absolutely screwed up things are, and how the two sides are living in totally different realities. I mean, different bubbles. Totally. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. It mm -hmm. is frustrating, even if you're on 545 radio stations once a week to feel on the outside because it is so hard to influence the discussion on the inside. There will be a yes. debate next week between the two presidential candidates um, and to not be able to influence the subjects that are brought up in that debate or the arguments that are brought up in that debate, even if you are a regular radio personality is, yeah, exactly. You got it. Frustrating. So Frustrating. that, yeah. yeah. So, uh, you know, with and I share that frustration um, because I, I have a motto. My my brand motto is classy, not trashy. Right. Um, and that is, uh, you know, that's a call to, you know, um, hip hop artists and people everywhere. Um, you know, what you take in is obviously what you're going to put out. And as somebody who highly wishes to be able to influence for the better and, and to um, be a voice for change and a voice for influence. It is frustrating um, to stand by and watch, knowing that no matter how hard I shout or scream or what kind of creative song I put together or you know who I could network with, that ultimately my voice is kind of drowned out by the time it reaches that point. Right. So I share frustration. I sh I, I do so much. I, I, <laughs> Especially in today's world, right? Right. Well, how no matter you? how, here's a blessing and a curse all at once. No matter how high you rise, there's always much higher to go. And that's great because it means you have constant motivation to keep yes. going up to the next level. But it's frustrating because you want to be up there at the level of ultimate influence. You want to be up there either talking to the, we're talking with whichever candidate you would yeah. like to be talking. To. And again, help yeah. setting the terms of the debate. Um, yeah. But very, very, very few of us uh, ever get up to that level. Yeah. yeah, 
you know, and especially in today's world where the, um, you know, basketball players and um, um, hip hop artists um, and, and some of them are, you know, some of them are, are quite negative themselves or in some ways breed what I like to call, uh, um, you know, that that growth of, of negativity. Now, what do you as as somebody who's been through several what I'll call entertainment changes. Um, what is something that you've seen be kind of just frustrating all the way throughout? Well, okay. back when, when I was doing this, you have to understand how I got in. Look, I'm a science nerd. I got into theoretical physics and microbiology at the age of 10. I compiled yeah, my then. first okay. scientific credentials when I was 12. I uh, built my first Boolean algebra machine. I built or, or I co-designed a computer that won some science fair awards. Um, I had my first meeting. Remember, I'm 12. I had my first meeting with the head of the graduate physics department at the University right. of Buffalo, my hometown university, to discuss um, the uh, Big Bang versus steady state theory of the universe and the interpretation of the Doppler shift. And then when I was mm -hmm. 16, I worked at the world's largest cancer research facility and came up with a theory of the beginning, middle and end of the universe that predicted something that wouldn't be discovered for 38 years called dark and we're, energy. And we're actually, that was, that's one of the amazing things that we're going to get into. And not only that, but we're also going to talk about the big bagel. Um, yes. And we're going <laughs> to, yeah, we're also, yeah, I, I like yeah. I said, I did my research um, and we're going to get into um, a lot of different things such as the $2 million moon prize and things. But I want to lay the ground and the foundation for where you have have um, you know drawn this experience from? You're you're you've been in so many different fields throughout all of these years, and I, some of them I can't even pronounce the name of. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's okay. I I I'm I'm the rock in the room. It's okay. I I I'll take that willingly. But I I say this out of all humility and respect that reading the biography and i don't mean the little short one i meant actually the long one i put myself through it yeah right um yeah there's there's a sense that you almost uh i have almost come to realize that the man sitting in front of me is no ordinary man and so i want to lay the ground foundation for others to understand that you're not just another ordinary man, that you've been referenced to being one of the greatest minds of our time, that you are responsible for <laughs> some of the biggest acts, but not only the biggest acts, in essence, what will be considered the biggest musical movements of, our, of my time, some of my time. And, and, and that is not to be taken lightly. So, with that being said, and with the education and the science that you have, where did you start? What you said you started out with the science and everything. Is that is that what you wanted to pursue? Or if I remember correctly, you had said somewhere along the way that you kind of got tired of that and wanted to, what would you call it? The journey of the beagle? Oh, is yes. The voyage of the beagle, which is what Charles yes. Darwin did. Yes. He yes. took five years off and uh, on a ship that was going around the coast of South America and mapping yeah. it. And he yeah. had adventure after adventure after adventure. So yeah, my journey into 
into music was my voyage of the beagle was my okay. going into a series of adventures um, so to as learn what leading, I wanted to learn. As well, you're leading into that adventure, right? right? As you're leading into that adventure, was that what you thought you were going to be doing? Before well, we here's the, the deal. I, I, uh, I never thought I'd be doing anything in particular at all. I just want, you know, after that incident when I was 10 years old and I got involved in science, I just started reading two books a day. One book okay. under the desk at school and one book when I got home in, in the afternoon. And, uh, and then at the age of 12, after absorbing hundreds of books, um, I realized I was an atheist. And here's where the journey that led to music really began. Um, I had I'd not confessed that I was an atheist to myself because I was looking forward to my bar mitzvah, because it would be the first party. I was not a popular kid. Kids did not like me in Buffalo, New York. My parents didn't seem to like me very much either. And, and this bar mitzvah was going to be the first party I was going to be invited to in my own hometown. Plus, gotcha. there were going to be presents. So gotcha. I spent, when the bar mitzvah was over, I spent two months writing thank you notes and, of course, not confessing to myself that I was an atheist so I wouldn't blow it all. And then when the last thank you note had been sent out, I was able You're to right. confess to myself openly, yeah, I'm an atheist. Okay, two weeks later, um, come the, Jew the Jewish high holidays. Very, very big deal on the Jewish calendar. And my parents are very insistent on getting me to the synagogue, even though they're not observant. And so they managed to get me in a suit. They managed to get me into the back seat of their four-door Frasier automobile. They managed to drive me all the way to Richmond Avenue, which is where the synagogue is. And then I refused to go any further. So I am hanging on to the door frame of the car with, my, with both hands. And my parents are trying to drag me by the ankles out of the car and up the street. And I had a sudden revelation that if, that if first of all, I, at the age of 10, I was brought into science by Galileo and Anton von Leeuwenhoek. Anton, Anton von Leeuwenhoek was the guy who invented the microscope. Galileo's brilliance was he took this brand new military instrument that was designed for seeing the troops of the enemy on the horizon before they knew you could see them. It had two, yeah, it had two lenses and a tube. And he took that device and he turned it up at the sky, which was considered absolutely ridiculous because everybody knew what was in the sky. That's God's underwear, and it's impolite right. to peek. Um, right. <laughs> and, and, and Anton von Leeuwenhoek had been a draper in Holland, and he had used a lens to look at the fabric that he was importing to see how fine the weave was. And he took Got that it. lens that he used for horizontal viewing and turned it down and looked at pond water and discovered an entire world of what he called animalcules, invisible animals. Humans had never been aware of before. Yeah. So there I am hanging onto the door frame. My parents are pulling at my socks and, and practically pulling my shoes off. And I have a sudden insight. Um, because I'm an atheist, there are no gods in this scene. There are no gods above us in the sky. There are no gods below us in the earth. And yet there are gods in these scenes. Where are those gods? They're in my parents. They're in the absolute passion with which my parents are insistent on dragging me like a sack of meat, their firstborn son, up the street to the synagogue. And if those gods are inside of, the, of them, then those gods have got to be inside of me. And I suddenly realized my mission in life, one of them, is to take that lens and turn it inside. Now, yep. this is not original, because Freud did it. Um, 
but it was a whole different approach to find the gods inside of us. And then when I was 16, and then I got hooked on the ecstatic experience and how the ecstatic experience is a part of the forces of history. Out of body. Yeah. And then when I was 16, because I was unpopular, but was in a, a, a really nifty high school, um, the kids, of course, you know, they voted the most popular kid in class, class president, the second most popular kid, vice president, most popular Jew treasurer, and the most popular female secretary. And I, I didn't last. Yes, well, I didn't have any role in any of those ranks. I wasn't yeah, popular either, at all. Yeah. But the brilliance yeah, no. of the school was it had functional committees, committees that actually had to get things done. And when yeah. it came to getting things done, the unpopular kids, I mean, the really popular the kids ones. who didn't have a clue, they yeah. were perfectly willing to load that responsibility onto somebody they hated, as long as he or she could take care of it. So they named me the head of the program committee um, for two years in a row. Um, every morning there was a school assembly for 45 minutes. I programmed two of those assemblies a week, and I emceed five of them. So one day the juniors came to me and they said, look, we're having a dance. Could you advertise it? And they didn't realize how ridiculous that request was, because if there were a dance or party of any kind in Buffalo, New York, I was cordially invited to stay as far away as possible, preferably Cleveland. Um, nonetheless, I put a piece of music on the turntable. Now, look, every two years, my parents would try to turn me normal and it never worked. Yeah. And one year, yeah. their big effort was to send me to dance class for a year at the Rissia Synagogue in town. And that dance class proved definitively, I cannot learn the box step, I cannot learn the foxtrot, and I cannot learn the waltz. Nonetheless, to advertise this high school dance, I put a piece of music on the turntable behind the stage, and I went out on stage in front of the audience, and instead of dancing, I started to move. And I was moving in ways no human had ever seen before. I looked like a Looney Tune on a night when Chuck Jones, the guy who drew Porky Pig and all the rest of them, was on LSD. Um, and, I, and, and I saw the pupils of my audience dilating, growing wider. And I yeah. saw their eyes widening. And I saw their faces found. melting. Right. You and I, yes. So I felt their faces melting into one big common amoebic blob of energy. And it felt as if I was having an out-of-body experience. It was my first out-of-body experience. I felt like I was on the ceiling watching all of this take place down below me. And I saw that energy flow through me as if I were an empty pipe, go up to around my head, become utterly transmogrified somehow, and go back to that audience and open their eyes even wider. And it was a continuous feedback loop. And it was, so here was the ecstatic experience that I had been after since I was 12 or 13 years old, hitting me for no reason, hitting me totally yeah. by accident, totally unexpected. And yeah, when, it, yeah. it was, when it was all over, the audience did something it had never done in my time in that high school before and would never do again, not for homecoming queens, not for football heroes. Oh, it was more than that, Twiz. The audience, 350 people, surged down to the foot of the stage, picked me up on their shoulders, carried me out of the auditorium, and carried me up the walkway to the building above where we had our classes, and only then did they put me down. It was astonishing. So here, by total accident, I had tripped in to the gods inside of us and the ecstatic experience and how it connects 
So William James, I discovered at 14, William James had a book called The Varieties of the Religious Experience. And I felt that title call to me as if he'd written that book precisely for me. And it took four months to track down that book. And in that book, William, because we didn't have Amazon in those days, and Buffalo's not a book-rich town. And um, so when I finally got it, it felt like William James laid out a bunch of ecstatic experiences, like the one I just described to you, on a table. But they were the experience of, uh, of St. Uh, Teresa of Avalar, um, who founded a monastic movement that's lasted to this very day, of uh, George Fox, the guy who founded the Quaker movement a movement that has lasted to this very day. And these were experiences in which they had hallucinations and ecstasies and all kinds of strange stuff. And they one thing, died, yeah, so. and it felt like James had laid these experiences out on a lab bench and said to me personally, look, I don't have the tools to understand these things, but when you come along 50 years later, you will have the tools. Yeah, yeah, and, and the yeah. other thing that James said was, all of these experiences are psychopathological, but in the hands of the right person, the psychopathological can become the engine of history. So, um, so I finally had landed where I needed to go. And then I, I went through, we went through a lot of adventures. I have a whole book called How I Accidentally Started the 60s about how I yeah. dropped out of college and, and accidentally uh, helped found the hippie movement. And, yeah. um, but when I got back to school, I graduated, I graduated NYU, Phi Beta Kappa and Magna Cum Laude with graduate fellowships at four different universities yeah. in something that didn't have a name yet. Today it's called neuroscience. And, uh, and I had a sudden realization over the summer before going to grad school, and it was that grad school was going to be Auschwitz for the mind. Why? Because among other <laughs> things, well, I was interested in this ecstatic experience. And, um, yeah, and, yeah. and how many ecstatic experiences was I going to run across in a career for the next 50 years of giving paper and pencil tests to 22 college students in exchange for college credit? So that I realized, plus my, I was my wife's second husband, um, and she was beginning to hint that she was tired of having student husbands, um, and I didn't want to lose my wife. And one day, uh, well, first of all, in my junior year, um, I was very serious about poetry, extremely serious. And I was taking all the poetry courses I could from the poet in residence at NYU. And one day he said, Bloom, wait until everybody leaves the classroom. Close the door, sit there. This did not sound good, Twiz. Um, so I waited until everybody left. I closed the door. I sat in the bowling out seat. And he said, look, you, last year I asked you to be on the staff of the literary magazine. You never even showed up. This year I'm telling you, you are the literary magazine. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're the editor of the literary magazine. You don't even have a faculty advisor. The minute you walk out that door, you're it. Now walk out that door. Um, so I walked throwing out. Throwing you to the fire. He's just throwing you to the yeah. fire. So I walked <laughs> out the door looking incredibly confused because I hated literary magazine. Look. If you had a rip-roaring orgy um, in a big room and you took a literary magazine and threw it into the room, the covers, the pale blue of the cover, yeah, was so uh, soporific, sleep-inducing, and the text choices, <laughs> the text-based choices were so appalling that it would empty the room in two minutes. So, <laughs> I, so a kid saw me and he said, you look disturbed about something, can I help you? 
And I said, yeah, I, I, I've just been named the editor of the literary magazine. Yeah. And he said, well, why don't we have a cup of coffee? Now, Twiz, I had not grown up among other kids. As I said, they wanted nothing to do with me. So yeah, I didn't know what simple. Was yeah. So I didn't yeah. know what having a cup of coffee was all about. But I followed him yeah. to a coffee shop. We sat down. I ordered a <laughs> glass of water. He ordered a cup of coffee. And he asked me one of the most important questions in my life. If you could do anything you wanted with this magazine, what would it be? And I said, it would be a picture book. So I went out looking for a team of artists. I already had a team of, of literary people. Yeah. Um, and, and we turned that magazine into an experimental graphics magazine that created an absolute furor on campus. They doubled our budget after the first issue. Wow. Have you ever heard of a budget doubling? No. Um, no. And, no, I've heard and, of budget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the second, the second issue caused a stir in the commercial art community, and I got calls from the art director at Look Magazine, which was a great big glossy full color yeah, news yeah. magazine, and from the Evergreen Review, which was the leading Bohemian magazine in the world, and from Boys Life, the Boy Scout magazine of all I things. Actually, I actually, I'm gonna be honest with you, I actually was a. Uh, um, yeah. A reader of Boys Life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I was right. to receive that magazine, so right. I can't say I read every one of them, but I, right. I was very avid with that. I was actually, um, what do they call it, Iwanas or something like that? Iwanas, something like that. I was whatever the uh, imitation version of a of a Boy Scout is. Really? Oh God. Yeah. Well, so that was at, that's forever. At any rate, so it was the B. I had just graduated magna cum laude and Phi Beta Kappa. I uh, yeah. had these four fellowships. Um, it was the beginning of the summer. Actually, I had tried to kill myself. I had no sense of purpose. The day after classes ended for four years, I'd had a sense of vivid purpose every single day, get straight A's, and I did Lost that for three years. No purpose. Yeah. So yeah. I'd yeah. done a half-hearted uh, half suicide attempt, and I'd been thrown into a mental institution, and it was an extremely, it was a learning experience. They let me out after two weeks for good behavior. So yeah. now I was disoriented. I didn't have a summer job yet. And I walked in to the apartment of the most astonishing of my artists. And it was very strange. There was no furniture in the room. There was a wall-to-wall -wall carpet. He, the, my artist, his wife, and his three-year-old were all on the floor crying. And I asked what was wrong. And they said, our electricity is being cut off, our telephone's being cut off, they've repossessed our furniture, and we're being thrown out of our apartment. And I said, but oh, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, I said, that's impossible. Your work is fucking brilliant. Yeah, and if anybody yeah. sees it, they're going to give you work. And if they give yeah. you your work, you're going to be able to pay the rent on your apartment. Yeah, so yeah, give, yeah. Me, give me your portfolio. I'll take it out for two weeks. That'll get you enough work to get by in life. And yep. then I'll find a summer job. And, yeah. uh, and my artist said, well, look, I came to New York from Boston um, with my best friend to found an art studio. So if you take my work out, you'll have to take his too. And Are you his kidding me? Work, well, his friend's work was nauseating. It was absolutely I, I, nauseating. I, I, it wasn't art. I'm sorry. I, you, know, I, I, you know, I've always been, I've always sat back and I've wondered, you know, what would, what would I do if, Anybody ever came to me and said, you know, Twiz, we we absolutely love your music and we love your stage performance because that's what I'm known for. I'm known for my stage performance, right? Right. So, like I value that more than I do a lot of other things, which is 
probably where I differ, right? But anyway, so I've always wondered what would happen if somebody came to me and said, man, your music is amazing. Your stage performance is out of this world. We believe that you've got this, but you've got to do this. Okay. I mean, I, I didn't sacrifice. I'm not, like you said, I'm not laying on this floor right now. I'm not trying to do anything and everything I can to extend my world just to say, oh, I can't do it, or you've got a breeze person, or to give you some kind of excuse. Absolutely not. That Those opportunities come around once. And you, I'm sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I just, well, frustrates just me I, I hear stories like that, right? right? Well, I just want to check with you. So you look to me like you have had the kind of experience that I was describing having on stage. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to be honest with you. I am, I've been a very bad part of my life. I used to be a, a, an ex-gangster, and with that entitles a lot of, a lot of stuff that I kind of wish I'd done. But the only time I'm truly happy and not happy because of somebody else happy with me, myself, my inner God, is when I'm at stage and I'm looking out and I see the awe and the expression and I see the vivid colors of the lights and I see the haze that just takes over. Like you said, it just kind of melts. Everything just melts. I'm watching myself rock these people and instead of being hate for my beliefs or hated because of who I am or what I used to be or the things that I've done, every single person is looking at me like amazement. And in return, I look at myself like amazement. And God, man, there's, that, there's no better feeling. There is no... So, <laughs> so you know that's one of the most vital experiences you can have in a human lifetime. That most people... Uh, don't have the they don't have the privilege of having that so at any rate my kids i have i have five soon to be six we're getting ready to have wow our six kids. amazing and that would be the only that's the only thing even come close to leveraging out right uh, uh and, and and you know i mean I, i'm a musician man that's what i do right i'm forming musician that's just what i am i was i was put here my energy was put here to Perform and entertain. <laughs> so, okay, this we're moving slowly toward the answer yeah. to the first question, which is what would basically what would you change in the entertainment industry if yeah, you could yeah, do it right? today? And and so it's the it's the beginning of the summer, and and I tell this artist to get his portfolio together, and he puts the work of this friend who's a nauseating artist into it. Yeah, and nauseating. I start and I start taking it out. And it, it allows me to go to every major advertising agency in New York City, which is the yeah. heartland of advertising in the world. Uh, yeah. It allows me to go to every major magazine. It allows me to go to every TV network. It allows me to go everywhere in the world of media. And I begin to realize, hey, Bloom, you've landed in a periscope position. You know yeah. the periscope on a, a submarine? Yeah. You've landed yeah, you in a position from which you can see, Everything. find your way into the dark underbelly where new myths and movements are made. And finding my way into that dark underbelly was very important to me. Yeah. It, it went yeah. hand in hand with finding the gods inside. Yeah. Um, so at the end of the summer, I hadn't sold any artwork. 
I had gotten New York Magazine interested in doing a feature on our art studio. That was about it. So I called Columbia University and said, I won't be in this year. I'll be in next year. And because I'm, I'm obsessive compulsive. And once I start something, I can't stop it. Um, yeah. and, and my wife was quietly threatening to leave if I didn't get out of school. You said and, that she didn't want no more student husbands. Yeah, right. And I wanted to find the lands where the gods are. So um, eventually I was featured on the cover of Art Direction magazine. I created, I invented a new animation technique for NBC TV. Um, wow. And we did all of the advertising graphics for ABC's F5, seven FM stations around the country when they made the transition from top 40 to this brand new format that was very risky called progressive radio where the DJs could play anything they wanted. And if they wanted to play entire albums, it was revolutionary. And ABC wow. asked me to form an advertising agency to handle their account. But I didn't want yeah. to learn time buying because that's just a matter of numbers. And it's too dry <laughs> for me. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. But, but then we have to go back to when I was 12 years old. When I was 12 years old and when I was in eighth grade, one okay. day a girl turned her face in my direction and looked at me. And twiz, it had never happened to me before. And then she did something even more shocking. She made eye contact, which really had not happened. Yeah. Even my parents yeah. make eye contact with me. <laughs> so, so, and she said, and remember, at that point, I was 12. I, I was establishing my first scientific credentials. And, she, uh, and, and the only recognition I got from these kids who just loathed me was they called me the sickly scientist. So she turned to me and said, I told my mother, you understand the theory of relativity. Now, the lore of the time was that only seven people in the world understood the theory of relativity. And I wasn't going to confess that I wasn't among them, that I did not understand right. the theory of relativity. Right. So as soon right. as school got out, I jumped on my bicycle. I pedaled to the local library. I walked in. The librarians literally knew me better than my mother did. And, <laughs> and I said, give me everything you've got on relativity. And they, yeah. they went through the stacks and they shoved two books across the counter at me. One was a little tiny skinny book by Albert Einstein himself. One was a great yeah. big fat book by Albert Einstein and two collaborators. So I pedaled okay. home as fast as I could. And I had learned at that age, always take the hard road. Never mm -hmm. take the easy mm -hmm. road. Um, mm -hmm. If you put yourself through a book you think you don't understand, by the time you reach the end of it, you will have understood you something. You will understand. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> So yeah. by 8 o'clock, four hours later, 8 o'clock that night, I was only 50 pages into the big fat book because it was seven words of English on a page and all the rest was mathematical equations. And I didn't understand mathematical equations then, and I still don't uh, understand them now. So, <laughs> so I figured, okay, I've only got two hours before my mom puts me to sleep, and if I don't understand the theory of relativity, by tomorrow morning when I show up in class, I'm humiliated. So yeah, I turned yeah. to the little skinny book and in the little skinny book, it felt like Albert, again, this is by Albert himself, Albert Einstein. It felt like he reached out through the page, grabbed me by the shirt, put his nose up to mine and said, Loom, <laughs> listen up. Yeah. To be a genius, he said, it's not enough to come up with a theory that only seven yeah. men in the world can understand. To be a genius, you have to be able to come up with that theory and then explain it so clearly that anyone with a high school education and a reasonable degree of intelligence can understand it. In other words, yeah. I had marching orders from Albert Einstein. 
that if I was ever going to become an original scientific thinker, I was going to have to learn to write and not just to be a good writer, to be an extraordinary writer. So I took my writing very seriously. And when I was building up the art studio, I realized that to fulfill the Einstein imperative, to to fulfill Einstein's marching orders, I was going to have to start writing for magazines. I'd already written. I had already uh, written and edited for the head of the Middlesex County Mental Health Clinic in New Jersey. So I had some scientific writing under my belt. I had already written for the Boy Scouts of America during a summer vacation who had put me to work first on first. They tried me on proofreading and then they decided to move me up the next day. And they handed me the Boy Scout handbook and the chapter on brace yourself, masturbation. And they said, can you rewrite this? And I said, yes. And so the old chapter had said you shouldn't masturbate because a long black hair is going to grow out of your left palm three feet long and your eyeballs are going to fall out. And that wasn't exactly an an argument that was going to cut it in the 1960s. Especially a scientific argument. (laughs) Yeah, right. So I wrote a whole new chapter about how you shouldn't do it because you'll feel guilty. Um, and then they, they had me do their handbook on, on um, camouflage and stalking and tracking. And I wanted, look, here I was serving you if you were a Boy Scout. And if you were a Boy Scout and you read my handbook on stalking and tracking, I wanted you to be, get, be able to get so close to a bunny rabbit that it didn't know you were there until you were yeah. rubbing noses with it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So I came to believe that I could write about anything if I cared enough about the audience and had research and was able to do research. Whatever that specific, that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and the the final final assignment they gave me was 12 Steps to Organize a Boy Scout Troop, which is the handbook that's used to organize a Boy Scout troop in a town that's never had a Boy Scout troop before. Right, right. And the irony was that when I was 11 years old, I have been thrown out of the Boy Scouts for incompetence at Morse code, and I've never heard of any other kid in my life being thrown out of the Boy Scouts. I don't know anybody. Yeah. I don't know anybody. <laughs> I thought they so, took everybody and kept everybody. So, <laughs> so there I was at Cloud Studio, um, establishing it as the major avant-garde commercial art studio on the East Coast, and I wanted. And I wanted to start writing for magazines because that would force me to write for really mass audience, to yeah. write really, really uh, deliciously. Really and I, yeah. yeah, and I couldn't figure out how to do it. Now, meantime, we our studio was in the East Village. And there was a designer four blocks away um, whose shop I had tripped into. And I'd started buying her clothes. And then we'd started designing clothes together. Yeah. So... Yeah. One day I walked into the office. Oh, networking. Right. So I walked into the office of an, under, of an underground fashion magazine that was being bankrolled by Baron Woolman, who had bankrolled Rolling Stone. Um, nice. And I expected to, it was, it was in a, the garment district in a big industrial loft, and I got off the freight elevator, which was the only elevator, and yeah. expected to put the portfolio down on a table and hear the three women in the room ooing and on over the artwork, and that didn't happen. Because as okay. soon as I stepped out of the elevator, they looked at my clothes, their jaws dropped, and they said, do you have more of these? And, and I, <laughs> nice. I said, yes, I've got a whole closet of them. Why? Oh, well, yeah. right. Right. And they said, do you think you could write an article about them? 
Nice. And I said, yes, of course. So I wrote the article that night and turned it into them the next day. And then they made me a contributing editor. And I wrote 175 pieces for them. So now I was writing for magazines. And then... So, quick yeah. question. In, in the process of that, uh, it seems like that was a pursuit that you wanted to do, right? Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. I'm just, I want to make sure that I'm keeping the difference between what was kind of placed in front of you and what you chose to actually do. Okay? Yes, exactly. This was an absolute okay. imperative. So, okay. and then another one of the contributing editors started her own magazine. It was called Natural Lifestyles. And okay. she made me a contributing editor too. Okay. Now, meanwhile, back at the art studio, there was a guy named Maddie Simmons. Maddie Simmons had helped invent something for American Express called the credit card. And oh, he nice. had made a fortune. And the next thing he wanted to be was a publisher. So he bought a young woman's magazine called Ingenue. And then he had an idea. There was a magazine that the kids at Harvard put out once a year. And it went on sale on newsstands all over America. And it sold out in two hours. So nice. he flew up to Boston and he met with two of the kids who put together this magazine and said, look, I will set you up in New York City. You'll have lovely apartments, high prestige apartments. You'll have a lovely and high prestige salary. You'll have everything you want. I'm just asking you to turn out this magazine, not once a year, but once a month. And they Easy. agreed to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, the, oh, yeah. and the, magazine, the magazine that sold out on newsstands all over America was called the Harvard yeah. Lampoon. And the magazine that Maddie established with these two guys from Harvard was called the National Lampoon. And because Maddie treated me like a father, and he really liked our artwork, um, he said, why don't you art direct this for me? So I took the project down, back downtown, so the Lower East Side, where my studio was, and brought right. it in. And within a couple of weeks, remember the artist whose work was so bad it was nauseating? Yeah, 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 yeah. He convinced half of the other artists to throw me out of the studio because he Whoa. said, look, we're going to be getting this great big chunk of money every single month. Why do we yeah. need Howard anymore? And if we throw him out, we can divvy up his share. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, but the secret deal was he was really trying to take over the art direction of the magazine himself. And he was an incompetent. Yeah. So always some, always, always some back, some back reason. <laughs> right. So, um, he made a botch of the magazine, and they lost the account uh, eight months later. Meantime, yeah. and then they all went back to what they were when I found them, and the leading artist, the one who was so brilliant, died yeah. of alcoholism at an early age. Oh, uh, no, more, no more national career. His career had been killed by his best friend's greed <sighs> to art direct the National Lampoon. So, I, hope I, don't, I hope I don't fall for it. You know, I, that's... I, you know, my biggest fear is I end up like like uh, Mac Miller or, or, you know, any of the potential greats that had every opportunity but got drowned out because of something else, right? So, like, when I hear, like, another, once I hear stories like that, I mean, that that's very personal. You know what I mean? Well, like, very shows, relatable. You know it what I shows mean? that when you become, in order to become a superstar, which is extraordinarily difficult, and almost nobody yeah, is able to do it. You not Until only did, have right? to you not only have to do everything right yourself, and by right yeah. I mean true to the fucking gods inside of you, um, <laughs> but but you and true to that audience experience that we were describing, yeah. but yeah. you yeah. have to have a team and it has to be a really really good one. 
So we'll go into, if we can get into it, we'll go into Prince's team later, which is a very good example of that. We're, we're going we're gonna to round back into that. We're definitely right. going to round back into that. So, but I, here's, I, here's the deal. So yeah. one day I was covering a parapsychology convention for Natural Lifestyles magazine. Now, up until now, I got up at 6 in the morning, went naked to the typewriter. It was a Remington manual typewriter. You had to hit the keys for that typewriter with a sledgehammer to get the typewriter to operate. And I, I wrote and from six o'clock in the morning till eight o'clock in the morning. Then I got dressed, went into the art studio, came home that night and sat there at the typewriter again until 11 o'clock at night with a pot of coffee. Every day, and, every day. And I was yes, seven days yeah. a week and I was getting yeah. tired. So um, they threw me out of the studio and I was covering a parapsychology convention one day for natural yeah. lifestyles. And um, so I was there hanging out with all the mind readers and the spoon vendors and the people who had been abducted by UFOs. And, yeah. um, and somebody the Vegas acts. Yeah, noticing that I had a pad in my left hand and a pen and was constantly taking notes, thought I was a journalist and walked up to me and said, would you like to edit a magazine? And I thought, wow. If I could edit a magazine, I wouldn't have to get up at six o'clock in the morning. I could do my writing during the day. Yeah. Um, and and I could live out the Einstein imperative. And it doesn't yeah. matter what kind of magazine it is, because look what I did for the Boy Scouts, despite being a Boy Scout. Yeah. Yeah. Um, failure. Um, so I didn't ask what the magazine was about. He gave me an uh, he gave me a time and a date and a location for an interview. Now, Twiz, in those days, we did not have Google. Today, yeah, you could have Googled the person you were having a meeting with, right? So you know everything right. about him by the time you walked right. in. There was no yeah. Google. There was no way to find out what this guy, who this guy was and what so his magazine was. Blind into Absolutely cold. And he explained oh to me God. that the magazine was called Circus. And I thought, okay, elephants and clowns. I'm not really fond of circuses. But, and then he said, no, 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 no. It's about rock and roll. Oh, good. And so and that... That's how I got into rock and roll. And then I started, you know, I had grown up listening to Rachmaninoff, Beethoven, Bartok, Stravinsky. Speaking of, real quick, real quick, I read that your what's called the greatest press agent of rock and roll, American music of rock, American music and rock and roll. Um, I can't, I, I had it wrote down and I can't read my writing now, but right. that's the gist of it. You've got pretty much. Uh, yeah, the there's thing. a quote on the website that says you're you're the greatest press agent of American music and rock and roll. That's what uh, Derek Sutton, the uh, manager of Sticks, and ten years after and Jethro Tull, um, said, uh, and a bunch of other people said it too. So, yeah, so so now we're getting up to that because I'm suddenly immersed in this environment where I've got to just do a crash course in gotcha. rock and roll like the music. Two-hour Einstein thing, right? right. Like the two-hour, yeah. Right. Plus, my, my um, publisher came to me and he said, look, in Germany there, or in, in Europe, there are these two magazines that sell a million copies each. One of them is in nice. Germany. It's called Bravo. One is in France. It's called Salut les Copains. And each of them sells a million copies in a market that's a fifth the size of the United States. So yeah. that means that theoretically, there should be room for a five million selling magazine in the United States. Plus, yeah. I want my magazine to read like Time magazine. He set me this problem. So I went to work on this problem for the next 10 months. I started dissecting Bravo, Salut les Copains, 
and Time magazine as if they were frogs on a table, on a lab bench. Okay, okay. okay. And then I came back to him and I said, look, if you give me access to your sales figures and you allow me to work some correlational studies, remember, I came out of science, um, I guarantee you I'll sell, I guarantee you we'll sell magazines. And he was very reluctant, but he turned the sales figures over. And I finished, and then I came back to him and said, okay, here's a new format for the magazine. Breaks every single rule that you've ever had. Um, But again, if you implement it, or you allow me to implement it, I guarantee you we will sell magazines. So he let me implement the new format. We increased it in in circulation 211% in the next 12 months. Wow. Um, Wow. That's, I mean, that's, that's like, and then some, right? And that's, wow, 211%. I mean, that's taking, that's taking a a pebble and making a boulder out of it. I mean, Yep, and a boulder of gold. Yeah, 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 totally. It it literally made him a wealthy man. Yeah, oh, wow. Wow, that's So one day, Chet Flippo, who was one of the founding editors of Rolling Stone, he founded Rolling Stone's New York office. Chet sent me a mess by messenger, a great big manila envelope. And and writers and editors do not send you things by messenger. You send them things by messenger. Yeah, yeah, right. So I opened it up and it was six pages on a little guy in a converted broom closet, a windowless broom closet, who was turning straw into gold. And it and, and it said that this person, whoever it was, had created a new magazine genre, the heavy metal magazine. Yeah. And it was me. Um, Chet, Chet was writing a, uh, he was writing on the history of rock journalism, and that was his six pages on me. Wow. So, so that's, that's apparently, that's apparently what yeah. I did. Um, yeah, right? <laughs> when you have to say, you did what? I did what? <laughs> right. So. Yeah. So then my publisher came to me after six, 18 months, after a year and a half. Now, remember, gotcha. I, I had never worked a job for anybody before. I okay. had co-founded an art studio. I, I was an owner of that business. Yeah and, yeah. and he said, don't you think it's about time for you to get a raise? Yeah. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, I've heard of those raises. I, 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 I... <laughs> So Rags Magazine had disbanded, and the editors had gone off. One of them had gone off to Vogue. One of them had gone off to co-found a magazine with Gloria Steinem called Ms. They'd gone off to important places. And I called all of them, and I said, uh, what do I ask for in a raise? And they said, yeah. describe what you did. Now, the day I walked into my meeting with the publisher, without knowing what the magazine was, on my yeah. right as I walked in, there was a broom closet, a converted broom closet. There were two guys packing their stuff. Those were the two oh, editors. No. Oh, and, no. And on my left <laughs> was the office of the publisher, with That's seven crazy. windows overlooking the river. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I had been hired and replaced two people. And when I left, it took five people to replace me. Wow. So when I described wow. what I did, they said, you should be getting a 60% raise. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, went. Yeah. I went to my publisher and said, "Here's what I need: a sixty percent raise." And he said, "No, I'm sorry, I can't do that." And I, just out of pride, um, turned in a six-month notice. And and I found a new editor for him, and I trained the new editor, and I wrote a fifty-seven-page booklet on how to turn out the format. I mean, that's um, nice. 
And and then the editor one day that I had hired and was training said, I want you to meet somebody. And he introduced me to Seymour and Linda Stein. Seymour Stein is the founder of Sire Records. Sire Records in those days had Eno and Echo and the Bunny Man and the Climax Blues Band and the B-52s and a bunch of people like that. Um, And eventually Seymour would sign somebody named Madonna. Yeah. So Seymour... Um, Seymour's record label was distributed by Gulf and Western, the biggest conglomerate at that point in history. And okay. it had it distributed 14 record companies. And Seymour okay. got me hired to create a public and artist relations department at Gulf and Western for its for 14 all. companies. Wow. Yeah. And that began... And then probably each of those had like 10, 10, 10 artists as well. Well, no, the deal company. I very rapidly realized that 12 of the companies were a joke. 12 oh, okay. of the companies, the, the, any record that they put out didn't stand a chance in hell of going anywhere. And okay. only two of the record companies were for real. One was Sire Records and one was Dot Records. Yeah, Dot sure. Records was number three on the country charts and was trying with all its might to become I number one. working on those two yeah. record companies. And, um, and one day, um, the head of, or the A&R person, A&R means yeah. artist repertoire, it's a talent scout, a talent scout for Paramount Records, which was a okay. dead losing company, um, really? was an amazing person. His enthusiasm for the acts he signed was just a sheer delight to see. Of yeah. course, none of them stood a chance of going anywhere, period. Yeah. Um, yeah. But one day he hit me with a problem that I couldn't dodge. He said, look, tomorrow I'm having a showcase for this girl that I just signed up um, uh, from Brooklyn. She's a 13-year-old from Brooklyn, and she's going to be a star, a Godzilla, a Super Smash, yada, yada, yada. And and I knew none of what he was saying could possibly happen. But because I was head of artist relations, that meant I had to show that the company was with these artists that we cared about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, look, I'm a very honest person. So if I went to an So it's hard for you to... No, if I went if I went to one of my artists and we weren't working on him, I told him that. Wow. Um, but and I had. What did that I, cost you though? What did that brutality cost you? I mean, what did that honestly well, cost you? I'll tell you in a minute. So I okay. went to this. I went to this performance at the Plaza Hotel, which was just a short, wonderful walk through Central Park away. Yeah. And sat in this amphitheater, like you know, with rounded um, nightclub style tiers. Yeah, sat at yeah. my little table facing the stage, and all of a sudden, this four foot eight inch squashed African American thirteen year old stepped out on the stage and into the spotlight. And the minute she did, it felt like she had grabbed you by the trachea. She put yeah. her nose up to yours, and she said, "Sit, stay Wake still, yeah. can't obey." Yeah. And yeah. she held us in her grip all of the people in that room for the next 45 minutes, and then she walked wow. off the stage. It was one wow. of the most amazing performances I had ever, ever seen in my life. Nice. Now, we, we had a problem. Golf yeah. and Western's 14 record companies were run by yeah. a guy named Tony Martell, um, and Tony Martell had discovered before I got there that his 16-year-old son had leukemia. Oh, okay. And leukemia back then was a death sentence. Yeah, so yeah, Tony yeah. had dropped all of his record company responsibilities. He came into the office at 9 o'clock in the morning. No other record company president did that because they had to be out of clubs at night checking out bands. So they yeah, came in at 10 
11 in the morning. Right. And right. he locked his great big wooden double doors, and we never saw him. So there was another company Gulf and Western owned called Paramount Pictures, and it was brilliant. And yeah. it was at the height of its powers. And it yeah. was run by a five foot four inch titan named Frank Yablons. All of us had heard his name. People spoke with him in tones of awe. None okay. of us had ever seen And Tony Martell went to the two <laughs> the guys. Man, the Wizard of Oz, the man behind the curtain. Yeah. So, <laughs> so Tony Martell, or uh, Frank Yablons, the president of Paranormal Pictures, went to the two guys who ran Gulf and Western and said, look, see how that little pissant record company of yours is losing you money? See how my yeah. company, Paranormal Pictures, is making you money? If you yeah, put yeah, yeah. the record company under my control, I guarantee you you'll thing. make money. Right. Yeah, I'll do the same thing. Yep, yep. So, so the next day, we all walked in, and there was a room that we knew of as the Xerox paper room because okay. our secretaries went there to refill the Xerox machines. The light was never on, but there were tons of Xerox boxes. Exactly. And we walked in, and that room was brightly lit, and there were no Xerox boxes. And Ooh, it turned wow. out that what the Xerox <laughs> boxes had been sitting on was a conference table. And oh. So we saw that conference table with chairs neatly positioned around it, and yeah, at every single about to happen. yeah, at every single place there was an eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper with a list of things. We had no yeah. idea what they were, and a yellow yeah. pad and a sharpened pencil. And we were told we were having a staff meeting. We had never yeah. had a staff meeting before, so um, we we all trooped into that room. And Tony Martell, our six foot one inch president, took the head of the table. And he started to talk about how we were losing money. And as a consequence, we needed to save money on things like yellow pads and sharpened pencils. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, we felt a presence behind us at the door. And uh, it felt as if a thousand laser beams had just gone off, as if trumpets were blaring, as if military drummers were drumming, and as if whoever had arrived at the door had arrived on a storm cloud wow. and we felt the presence of this man behind us as he walked down the length of the table toward Tony Martell and as he walked toward Tony Martell Tony shrank and shrank and shrank uh -huh. in his <laughs> and finally Tony slid off of his seat like a jellyfish and Frank Yablons took over and Frank Yablons looked at the eight and a half by eleven sheet of paper with a list of things we didn't know anything about and he turned to the guy on his left, the, the department head on his left, and he said, you, what are you doing about this record? And I had heard about bullshitting at oral exams at universities, but I had never seen it. And all of a sudden, I saw it. This guy spun such a vivid and astonishing story that it was beyond belief, except you That's knew crazy. that none of it was true. And yeah, then you yeah. went to department head number two, and he said, you, what are you doing about this record? And once again, another brilliant, extemporaneous, creative attempt. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then he got to me, and I said, I stood up and said, Mr. Murtrell, I'm not doing anything about this record. In fact, yeah. I'm not doing anything about any of the records on the list. None yeah. of them stand a chance in hell. But yeah, yesterday, yeah. I saw, and then I described to him, the, 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 the acting stuff. Yeah, right. And her name, by the way, was Stephanie Mills. And when I was finished, Yablons stood up without saying a word, 
and walked in utter silence out of the room. So as we were doing a scrum, you know, when there are a dozen people trying to get through a door at once, there's a, <laughs> a scrum that you really don't notice. The yeah. vice president over my head grabbed me by the arm so hard that I had the marks of his fingers in my arm for the rest of the week. Red marks. Wow. And he said, you fucking none. If you ever do that again, you're fired. And huh. when I headed toward my office, my secretary was way outside our space. She yeah, was yeah. trying to anticipate me at the pass. And she said, Mr. Yablon's office called. They want to see you at noon tomorrow, um, and they want to see Stephanie Mills. Mr. Yablon's is calling a meeting of all of his department heads. Bring it in, yeah. And two weeks later, the vice president who told me I'd be fired was fired, which I was very sorry about because he was a very decent human being. Um, Good person, but poor decision making, right? Right. And from that point on, Yablon's made me uh, an unofficial member of the staff of Paramount Pictures. Nice. So whenever they were putting together a blockbuster or had a troubled movie, bring they you in. Yes, exactly. And he must have told them, look, let him do anything he wants to do. Whatever it is, he'll deliver results. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at the end of the uh, year, at the end of the year, we were sold to ABC Records. Okay. ABC Records, they flew a vice president in who said, go about business as usual. There will be no blood flowing in the corridors of this company, which right. I interpreted to mean do everything you can to save your skin because there's yes. about to be a bloodbath. Yeah, and, yeah. And two weeks later, um, 57 people in the record company got pink slips and only one person wasn't fired. And that one person was me. But all of my staff had been fired. So I resigned. And the next day, the same vice president from the West Coast was in my office. He said, get out a blank piece of paper. I did. He said, put your name at the top. I did. He said, put the names of the staff members you want to keep underneath yours. I did. He said, fill out the amount of money you want paid to each of you. I did. I gave us all a 20% raise. Yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, I was the head of uh, Art of Public and Artist Relations on the East Coast for, Gulf of, or for ABC's record company. And then I got a call from the lawyer who had negotiated the deal. And he said, and I don't have anything to do with lawyers. I mean, I don't know the business end of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And he said... Um, you know why we were able to sell that pissant little record company for so much money to ABC, don't you? And I had no clue, none whatsoever. And he said, because of you. And I didn't believe him. And then yeah. he tried to explain. He said, look, look what you did for Dot and for Sire Records. You doubled those two companies in value. Yeah, and yeah, the result yeah. is that when, when Gulf of Western's record operations were sold to ABC, Seymour Stein, the president of Sire Records, Flew out to the West Coast and said, if you get rid of Bloom, you're going to lose me. Mm. And Jim Fogelsong, the president of Dot Records, flew out to the West Coast and said exactly the same thing. So that's why you're in such a pretty position um, in so, this company. Question, question. Yeah. Uh, during this time period now, are you still doing by choice your desire to fulfill the inner gods? Or have you now gotten lost onto some journey they didn't see coming no i was on the path to the gods within so you're still on your path you're right. still you're still on this voyage of yours you're still living these adventures right and, 
during this time period, do you ever stop to look back and say, wow? Never. 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 Always Why? look forward. Always look Always forward. Always look forward. My nice. motto was, embrace yourself. My motto was never, never stop to smell your own shit. Just keep moving forward. <laughs> if there is, if there is, if there is a, 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 a mud storm, you just yeah. keep crawling forward. You never crawl, crawl back. Um, and that's what I did. So one day, when I got to ABC, there was a record at number three on the charts, on yeah. the pop charts. We had never had nice. any such thing at Gulf and West. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was eager to work on this record, and I discovered yes. something. Yeah, the whole right. staff, the West Coast public relations staff, was all white. And at that point in history, if you can believe this, it was unhip to work on black artists. So none of them would, none of them would touch that. this record. Not yeah. a single one. So yeah. I discovered that the manager of this group was about to fly in from California to New York. He was married to Diana Ross. Um, his, he was the father of Tracy Ross Ellis, or whatever her name is, Casey Ellis Ross, and, um, and he was based here. So I got a limo, and I went out to the airport to pick him up and show him how much we cared about him. But I really had ulterior motives. I knew that we would be baked in traffic at 5 o'clock yeah, yeah. in the afternoon yeah. Um, yeah. after I'd picked him up. And I would have him as a prisoner. And I said, Bob, I know your band prides itself on its democracy. I know that every member is proud of being equal to every other member in the group. But if you let me focus all attention on the lead singer, and if you cover my ass with the band, I guarantee you I will give you a star. And he did. He did exactly what I asked. And I yeah. focused all the attention on the lead singer. And see yeah. if you've heard of her. Her name is Shaka Khan. Yes, I know her. I, I know who she is. <laughs> yes, yes, I know of her. Yes, yes. Right. Yes. In fact, in fact, I, I have to say that if it wasn't for the influences of individuals like her at that time era, that I don't think we would have, obviously, my So I really value a lot of what we'll call the hip-hop history because... These are pioneers, and, and I consider her to be such a pioneer, you know, right. I mean, ahead of her time and in a field that doesn't want her there, so to speak, you know what I mean? Right, so, and Prince felt yeah. the same way about Shaka Khan. Yeah, um, yeah. So you're not alone. So I'm going to skip over nice. a whole lot of this story. Um, okay. And, and it, it took me about five years, something like that, to work out a technique that I called secular shamanism. Okay, secular shamanism? shamanism. Right. Remember, like I'm a scientist. Like a, like, a, so. like a shaman, like right, an Indian exactly. shaman. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. Okay. And what it meant was, if you came into my office once I had my own PR company and could do things okay. my own way, if you came yeah. into my office and you were interested in working with me, Wham's manager did this, for example. Okay. I would sit you down and say, look, if you expect me to fashion an artificial mask for you. And sit back like a guy in a plaid suit with a cigar in his hands, saying, <laughs> kid, kid, with this image, I'm going to make you a star. Then I'm, I'm going to send you. <laughs> yeah. Then when I'm going to send you to my best competitor immediately. I don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to work with me, you have to understand music is not about an exchange of pieces of plastic. It is not about an exchange of downloads. Not it is not about soul, an connection. Exactly. It is an exchange of human soul. And if you're going to work with me, 
my job is to find the gods inside of you. What do I mean by that? What I mean is you're up against an album deadline. You sit down at two o'clock in the afternoon in front of a blank laptop screen to write a lyric. You know you cannot possibly write a lyric. You don't even know how you've ever written a lyric in the past. And yet at four o'clock in the afternoon on a reasonably good day, there's a lyric in front of you. And on yeah. an unreasonably good day, maybe once or twice in your life, that lyric is so perfect, it feels like it wrote itself through you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My job is to find the gods inside of you that wrote that lyric. That create that, yeah, right. exactly. And when you go on stage, um, you feel the pupils of the audience highlighting, you feel their faces melting, you feel that energy go through you, you have that out-of-body experience, and you are danced like a marionette, yes. like a puppet. <laughs> For yes. 70 minutes on stage, yes. I'm going to find the gods you. inside of you that dance you. And then I'm going to introduce those gods inside of you to your everyday, ordinary, hello, how are you, fine, thank you very much self. Okay. Um, and we're going to work from there. And I'll come back every year and we'll do it all over again because every year those gods are going to be changing inside and of you. have a chance, yeah. Right. No, no. So what's missing from the entertainment industry today is that approach. Soul. I also yeah. told you that you don't just owe your audience your songs, you owe your audience your life. Why? Everything. Yeah, because that soul that you are is going to come across so powerfully that kids are going to hang the poster of you on their walls when they're 12 years old and going through a massive hormonal shift from children yeah. to adolescents. To and adults, you, yeah. you know what a trellis is for a, tomato, yeah. for a tomato plant? It's You're going to be the drink. You're the trellis on which other people will be growing. Yeah. So that soul connection is absolutely vital. And remaining I, true I, to God's inside of you is absolutely vital. And what's I missing a, from, what, what, let me just finish. What's missing from no, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. is icons are being sold off for ginger ale commercials and automobile commercials and stuff like that. And it yeah. destroys that soul to soul connection. Yeah. Absolutely destroys it. So yeah. kids no longer have icons whose genuine products. They have products. Yeah, right. So they don't have people whose souls they can grow on right now in the celebrities that they see. And that is one of the most vital things in entertainment. And it's missing right now. I have a I have a a state a state a saying, a statement that just kind of reaffirms that, you know, if you're a real entertainer, like I value and pride myself to be. Um, and notice I don't say a rapper or things like that. Yes, I'm in hip-hop, but I embrace that hip-hop is open into many facets. I don't go out there and just blah, 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 blah. So uh, I, I say entertainment because it's a broad scope. Of things. But in my life, in my world, I live it one fan at a time. So that's that, super, that super fan that I have for that moment, however moment, however long that moment may be, could be a day. It could be an hour. It could be one tweet. It could be for the rest of my life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna live through them. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk to them like they're a normal person. I'm gonna ask them about their days. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show them that they are of value, and by in such, I become value. Right. And and so yeah, I live, I live one fan at a time. My biggest thing though is, is you're so, you got all this knowledge and and. I, I kind of want to say, man, it's just not like that because I don't see that, right? I don't, 
I, that approach that you talk about, the ideas that you have, the the mindset that you went and built these acts with, or built these or these books with, or or took these journeys with, I just don't see that anymore. And I feel like I almost feel like because I don't see it, that must mean it's not real anymore. And therefore, if it's not real anymore, what am I chasing? What am I what am I working for? What am I what God am I trying to satisfy it inside of me if I I don't? I kind of lost that purpose. Like, where's, you know, where you, you were sitting there a little while ago, you was like, man, I woke up one day and I had no purpose, right? right. Well, I, I, without accomplishing what I'm trying to do, I have no purpose. Right. Like my purpose in my head, in my heart, my, my God said to me, my purpose is this. So if, if, if you had an act, so, so, so say you, you're, you're, you're here, you're, you've got your PR business going, the act comes, I sit down in front of you and I say, look, I don't have writer's block. I've got all these performances. I know what I'm, I'm confident. I'm comfortable. But but then you look at them and you say, so what? What? Where, where's that God? What, where, what's that God? And you say, I, I am that God. Right. right. So how do you how how would I explain that to you in a conversation of where I'm trying to go? If all I see is the goal, but I, I don't know how to connect it to. No, I feel it. No. I know it's there. Right. Right. Well, you got to start with your own motivation, and and yeah. and I would never have allowed you to get into the state of despair. Um, that that <laughs> no. that, ahead, that, that told you that these goals are not alive in the entertainment industry anymore, or that would say that you're insane for pursuing the goals of making well, that. So a minute ago, a minute ago, like you said, one of the things that's lost is the idea of selling the soul of, of, of the idea, the story, the, the connection, the things like that. And, and like we both agreed, today's world is more about giving them a product. And so in idea, in the sense of giving a person a product, you've taken away everything that made that product good. You understand what I mean by right. that? It's like an indie artist before they go mainstream. That indie artist is the best, the best. And right. then they go mainstream and it's like, oh my God, what happened to you? You know what I mean? Right. So, it even with some like I I feel like um, so let's take um, let's take let's hypothetically create an, a situation here. We've got an artist, and let's say it's a rock artist, not even hip hop or anything like that. Let's say it's a rock artist who has a great band and they're loyal, they're solid, so you don't have to worry about that. And he's got the writing, he's got all the performance and everything like that. And he knows and he feels inside that he's going to be something and. And it's all the perfect package. But the guy comes into you, he sits down, and he says, you know, Mr. Boom, I don't know how to answer your question. What then? Well, the process is, another thing that I would tell you is, don't expect any results from my company for the first six weeks. Because for those first yeah, six you weeks... you got to give it time, right? Yeah, but also, I'm going to be reading everything you've ever written. I'm going to be listening to every album you've ever made. I'm going to be looking at every nice. album cover. Actually I'm, doing homework. Yeah, I'm going to be studying you. And I'm going to basically compile a, a bio of you before we okay. ever meet. But then I'm going to insist that I be allowed to come out to your environment, whatever that is, and that yeah. we sit down for anywhere from one to three days with yeah. huh. no intercessors, no assistants, no wives, no managers, nobody in the room but you and me. And just learn each other. And that's the secular shamanism. That's yeah. where I'm going to find the story of the gods inside of you. 
And then, like, let's take Prince, for example. So by the time I got Prince in 1981, I had evolved this technique, secular shamanism. Okay. It took me seven okay. years from the time yeah. I first entered publicity. And um, I made these demands. And um, but before that, look, I every Monday I sat down and read every single trade paper there was. And there were three of them in those days. And right. I had noticed that on the R&B charts, there was this artist I'd never heard of who was moving up the charts, the black album charts. Yeah, and then yeah. I noticed that his album had gone gold. And yeah, then I yeah. noticed that his album had gone platinum. platinum. And it was a person yeah. that I'd never heard of totally before. Yeah, totally I followed yeah. everybody. And then yeah. I got a call saying Bob Cavallo, who manages Earth, Wind & Fire, which is my band, um, is, has got a new act, um, and he'd like you to work on it. And I said, okay, fine, and I laid out my terms and conditions. Yeah. And uh, then I got a call from Warner Brothers out on the West Coast. And Warner's had uh, an A-plus level staff, Harvard, wow. Princeton-level people. Nice. And this extraordinarily nice. articulate, articulate woman said, look, you're not going to be able to work with Prince. We tried to set up two interviews for him on the West he Coast. I read that. He yeah, choked out right. one of them. Yeah. He, tried, he wouldn't talk to one of them. He didn't say a word. And the other one, he tried to choke. Right. Yeah. So um, I insisted on seeing Prince in his own environment after I'd studied everything there was. Yeah. And they flew me of all places to Buffalo, New York, my hometown, not Prince's hometown, Minneapolis is his hometown. Yeah, but yeah. he had camped out at the Shea Theater where I, where I had seen a movie when I was 11 um, to rehearse his Dirty Minds tour. Gotcha. So I, I went to the Shea Theater at 11 o'clock at night. I sat in the empty audience portion, uh, watching as Prince and the Revolution rehearsed. And then we, I went up on stage. The two of us went backstage. We found an empty room with a door that could lock. Right. We locked the door. And Prince and I were there from 2 o'clock in the morning until somewhere between 6 and 9 o'clock in the morning, um, getting the story of his life. And um, it was just you and him, just you and him. Yes, absolutely. It would not have worked. It would not, not have worked if there were anybody else in the room, simply because I was soul diving. That's what secular shamanism is. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then I flew back to New York with my little TRS-100 computer, the very first laptop computer. Right. Organizing the notes into a coherent story focused around his passion points, his imprinting moments in life. Okay. okay. And then I had the whole thing typed up, and I sent it to Prince. And I told Prince, look, I'm going to set you up for three days in a row of interviews in New York City, eight interviews a day. You got to do you got to yeah. do them. Then I'm going to send you out to L.A. and you're going to do three days of interviews, eight hour, eight interviews a day out there. Yeah. Now, what I'm sending you is what you told me. It is the story of who you are. It's the story yeah. of your passion for music. And when a journalist walks into the room with you, first of all, never say, as I said to the previous journalist, you have to treat this as if this is the only journalist you've ever met in your life. Um, secondly, no matter what question he asks you, answer with the story that's in these notes that I'm sending you. Always stick because, to the script. Yes, Always stick yes. to the script. It's like doing your best hits on, your greatest hits on stage. You've done yeah. them a million times, but you do them every exactly. time as if you've never done them yeah. before. As yeah. if that audience is your first. Yeah, yeah. That, 
that writer, and they were all men writers in those days, that guy will go home to his wife that night and say, honey, I'm the greatest interviewer in the world. I asked this absolutely brilliant question. Uh, how do you categorize your music? And I got this yeah. amazing story out of this kid named Prince. Yeah, so yeah. that's how I prepped you. And then something would happen like this. One day I got a call from John Mellencamp. And John, and John didn't call that often. And that's an understatement. He almost never called <laughs> And he said, look, um, Heinz ketchup. In those days, Heinz ketchup only came in glass bottles. The plastic squeeze bottle was not yeah. common yet. And in those okay, days, okay. you had to spend a half an hour shaking that bottle of ketchup, pounding on the bottle of ketchup, banging it with, with, with a knife <laughs> to get it to come out of the bottle. Your hamburger was cold yeah. by the time the ketchup yeah. came out. So yeah, Heinz right. ketchup had a brilliant idea, turned that into an advantage. <laughs> And they used Carly Simon's song, Anticipation. Okay. Now they wanted to use John Mellencamp's Hurt So Good. Yeah. And John yeah. said they offered me $1.25 million, which was a lot of money in those days. Wow. Yeah. And, um, and what should I do? And I said, John, what do you want to be in 15 years? Do you want to be making yeah. money for your audience? Or do you want to be living off of the, in, your investments? And John yeah, yeah. said, I want to be making money in front of my audience. And I said, yeah. then you have to turn down the ketchup promotion. And here's why. Because imagine a giant city like Jerusalem in the days of Isaiah with walls that are five stories high. And you are a person locked out of those walls. Every teenager yeah, is yeah. a person locked out of those walls because he throws himself out of his family's home when he's 12 yeah, or 13 yeah. years old. The same happens with yeah. women, with girls. And all of a sudden, he feels like a nobody, like an absolute nobody. And you were standing there outside the, the walls of that city, raising your fist in the air and saying, I have a right to be. Yeah. I am important and have a right to exist. Yeah. And yeah. that's what you are now. And you are doing that for hundreds of millions of other people in your position. Yeah. But if you accept a ketchup commercial, it's like the gates opening to the city. You're walking in and you're being one of the guests of the dinner parties. You are no longer that voice outside the gates. You are yeah. part of that city. Part you are its part of that. Yeah. yeah. So John turned down that commercial, and um, and his manager, Billy Gaff, who had managed Rod yeah. Stewart's career, quit on the basis of that decision. But wow! But that was the necessary decision. I agree. Yeah. To keep John in touch with who he was. And to allow yeah. John to continue that exchange of souls keep with going, his audience. Keep going. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was the advantage of finding the gods inside. Um, so and, 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 and this all happens because of that time you spend with them. That, that that's you know that. That's your you, yes. you you live and breathe and die by this philosophy. Yes, exactly. Well, buddy, whenever you're ready to spend three days. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, let's move on a little bit. Um, you know, I, I had, uh, you're revered as being up there with Darwin, Newton. Um, someone's called you the next Stephen Hawking. Um, Elon Musk praised you and your project, um, something called the $2 billion moon prize. Now, before you explain what the $2 million moon prize is, what's it like to have Elon Musk praise you? I mean, come on. I mean, of people that, you know, said, hey, Howard Blue's a, a, a great guy or he's smart or whatever. 
team, Elon Musk is that's well, in that's like that's like Leonardo calling you a great painter or a great inventor or something. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> well, in two thousand and five, I was dragged out to a space conference in California. Yeah. I'm located in in Brooklyn, New York, um, yeah. and um, and I saw Elon Musk speak. And okay. Elon now Elon had not flown anything yet. He had not yeah, even yeah. flown a tin can with a firecracker in it. Yeah, he was um, still just <laughs> Yeah. And and the people at NASA were saying he'll never fly anything. Okay. But Elon said, when I got out of college, I asked what three things would do the most in my lifetime to change humanity. And my answers were the internet, alternative energy, and space. So yeah. I started on the internet and I helped build PayPal and I made a billion dollars. Yeah, I, I was then I, I, skipped, I was watching right. the interview. <laughs> so ahead, then I jumped over number two, alternative energy, and went directly to number three space. Okay. When I saw that guy speaking, and it took me years to figure out what was happening, uh, something yeah. went off in me. Yeah. And it took me 10 years of thinking that through to realize that I apparently have an alarm in my gut. That tells me when I am seeing a person, a superstar, a yeah. person of mythic, at a mythic level. Yeah. But I knew that, that minute. Yeah. I knew that minute. The kids, 110 years from then, would wow. be modeling their lives on Elon's. Wow. Life. So, so totally. I had four phone conversations with him. Okay. And I couldn't even tell him why I was on the phone with him. I was wasting his time. Because oh I didn't gosh. know why I was on the phone with him. It was because oh, no. of that alarm bell in my gut. And it, as I yeah. said, it would take me 10 years to figure that out. Uh, so, wow. uh, so, but since then, look what Elon has accomplished. He had his 100th yeah. light um, yeah. about a week ago. Uh, yeah. A Starlink. Well, he is the future of space. He is. I, I know you've got Bezos. I know you've got Bezos and you've got NASA and you've got, I think it's called what, the ULS or something like that or ULA well, or whatever. Right. Yeah. But I, I'm going to be honest with you. None of them, none of them have the visionary mind and or the ability to, in, in, in essence, he's the Tony Stark of our time. Yeah. He, he has the mind and the ability to create and get done exactly what he's trying to do, which, you know, we're talking about making space part of home. And, and right. to do that, you, that takes, that takes structures, that takes routines and services. I mean, how you drink water, how you gonna get rid of waste, how you, there are so many factors and things that go into this. So Elon Musk, I feel, has not only the, like I said, the visionary mind, but the creative process to be able to knock out more than anybody else in his competitive field. So, I mean, that's- More than, more know, than anybody else I've seen in my lifetime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm glad we agree on that. Yeah. I'm glad we agree on that. A lot of people argue, oh, well, Bezos is this and that. I don't care. I, I, I believe firmly in, in Elon and his, he's going to get it done. Yeah. And, and I, hope that I, I hope that I'm able to witness that, you know, very uh, hands-on in my lifetime right. and not just from a distance. You know, right. and I want to be, I want to be that, <laughs> you know what I mean? I be the first rapper to perform in space you know I, that that's where i'm trying to go with it you know what right. i mean like you know just so many spaces open space is space is space is space is home space is the future space is potential space is limitless 
ideas and no boundaries. So, I mean... And I, I wrote a little manifesto. It's actually a 100-picture visual manifesto okay. called Garden the Solar System, Green the Galaxy. Okay. And it's about taking ecosystems to space. Okay. Taking entire okay. ecosystems to space. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that's really our destiny. Because, yeah. you know, we're not the only creatures on the face of this planet who can do research and development. Bacteria exactly. do research and yeah. development. And yes, the result is that that 20 miles beneath your feet and mine, bacteria are turning raw rock, basalt and granite, into bio stuff, um, yep. into potential green stuff. So they have a lot more vision than we do because we think we've run out of resources. Bacteria, yep. no, we haven't. Um, for every ounce of biomass on this planet, there are 100 million ounces of non-living stuff, dead stuff. Wow. And what's the basic wow. imperative of life? To kidnap, seduce, and recruit as many dead atoms and molecules as possible and bring them into the grand enterprise of life. Now, once upon a time, this was a poison pill of stone. This planet is okay. the mother of all climate catastrophe. I mean, in its yeah. early days, for three hours, the temperature would go up 88 degrees the, and the surface of this Earth would be scalded with this yeah. um, toxic stuff called radiation. And then for three hours... It would be dipped 88 degrees, it would go, become 88 degrees colder, and it would be dipped in this equally toxic stuff called darkness. Um, and then, because it had a wobble, uh, a tilt to its axis, every turn around the sun would produce four massive climate changes um, called summer, winter, fall, and spring. We're going to fall. Yeah, 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 right. yeah. And then every 22,000, 44,000, 100,000 years would come an ice age or a global warming. And this is before right. there were any tailpipes and smokestacks. This was nature's yeah, yeah. way of doing Natural things. cycle. Natural cycle. Yeah. Natural cycle. And, and life was so tenacious that it managed to green and garden the place despite all over of this. Over and over and right. over and over and over. Right. Yeah, despite 142 mass die-offs. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And if you take a plane from New York to L.A. and you look out the window, once you get past Pennsylvania where everything is green, everything turns brown, and you realize <laughs> just <laughs> how yeah, you realize just how little life there is on this yeah. planet and how we've just yeah. begun to green and gar all green and garden the place. certain areas, certain sections. Right. Yeah. So if we have managed to green and garden one poison pill of stone in the last four billion years, there are a zillion poison pills of stone Out above there. our heads just waiting yep. to be gardened and greened. Yep. So, so I, I went to that space conference. I was dragged there by one guy from the National Science Foundation, which is the Vatican of Science, um, a senior right. risk analyst from NASA, and a whole bunch of right. other people from the National Space right. Society. And I met Buzz Aldrin. And Buzz Aldrin convinced me that we needed a group that we now is now called the Space Development Steering Committee. Uh, I, boy, you took it. Uh, that yeah. was the next, uh, the next key right. point on the button. Yeah, and, go ahead. And Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, was also one yeah. of the members of that group and was a huge supporter of what I was doing. Yeah. And yeah. then I, I did a series of opinion pieces in the Scientific American on their website, and one of them called for a permanent space transport infrastructure. And Jeff Bezos picked up that piece, and he retweeted it to yeah. his God knows how many followers. Um, 
So that's what I'm doing in the space community. But remember, science was my base when I was 10 years yeah, old. Yeah, I, I was going to say, you, you, you've, you've definitely walked an interesting journey. I mean, your, your, your uh, uh, journey of the Beagle has taken you on, on Brent points of interest here. Now, I, real quick, though, before we leave the space talk, because, you know, we've got about you know, 20 minutes or so left here. And, and, and before we get out of here of the space talk and go into some of these other things like uh, 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 Howard Humongous and things like that, I, I want to uh, talk about the big, the big bagel. So from what I'm understanding, so in everybody's mind, picture a bagel. And in the middle of the bagel is the hole. But in the middle of the hole, it goes from big to infinitesimally little small, okay? Right. And so from what I'm understanding is the energy comes up from the middle, and because of the, the steepness of the slopes of the bagel, it is gravity that is forcing it up and over, okay? So that's where we get the speeding up of, of the universe right now. Right. And then it, it, it basically slows back down as it goes back over the hump. Right. And then the pull of the antimatter, right? Antimatter right. is that right? Am I right? right. It yeah. pulls it back down with its own gravity field. Okay, so and here's you got a. This is a Go terrific. Ahead. This is a terrific summation. Absolutely terrific. But oh, one good. Little, Thank you. <laughs> one little correction. Okay, so we've got Go that ahead. infinitesimally, anally retentive, puckered little hole at the center of the bag. It's out the top and, and the, out the bottom. Yeah, and and that's where the Big Bang takes place. Yeah. And now, now I was trying to solve years? a problem. It was when I was 16 years old, I came up with this theory okay. when I was working at the world's largest cancer research center. And okay. I was trying to solve something called the CPT problem. And the CPT okay. problem, the charge parity and time problem, is that if matter and antimatter were created in equal amounts at the same time, Where's where the, the hell is all the antimatter? Yeah. So yeah. in the big bagel theory, the normal universe comes out of the top of the bagel. The antimatter universe comes big banging out of the bottom of the bagel. They're both right. pushed by some extraordinarily explosive force. And, um, and they, yes, they move rapidly. Um, that's called inflation coming out of the hole because the steepness okay. of the curve means rapid movement. And then they okay. get to the hump. And what happens at the hump? It's like a cannonball running out of energy uh, and going in a yeah. parabolic arc. They begin right. to descend toward each other. And they accelerate, they get faster and faster as they're descending. Why? Because even though one is an antimatter universe and one right. is a matter universe, they, they share have... a common language. And that right. language is gravity. And gravity, so their yeah. gravity is calling to each other and pulling right. them faster and faster into the arms of each other. And yeah. then on the outer rim of the universe, the matter and antimatter annihilate. And guess what they become? The, the hole at the center of another big bagel. So 1.68 million years, billion Roughly years, something like that. Yes, 1.68 billion years. Yeah, is, we've got... and we're at 7.7 7 right now. Is that? No, we're I, at. I... Uh, oh wait, hang on a second. I forgot no, to turn okay. this off. Take your time. Take your time. Uh, no. Let's just turn this off. Okay. So God knows what that is. So we've only got a few billion years before we come to the end of the universe. We're at 13.7 billion years, okay. and the hump. The hump was at 7.7 .7 billion years. Gotcha. Um, so we don't have that long to go, but it's a certainly an immense time in human terms. Okay. And I, and I feel this is just my feeling. You can you can criticize me on this. I feel that it's we get better and better at passing along information every five years. Yeah. 
And it is our obligation to take everything that we have learned and yes. roll it up in one ball and roll it with rough stride through the iron gates of life, to, to quote Andrew Marvel, to take that and roll it through the annihilation of the universe on the bagel's outer edge and into the next big bagel. So that yeah. big bagel can start out knowing everything that we have ever learned. Yeah, yeah. So, and so I, 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 I don't know how you're going to feel about this, but it, it almost seems as if you would agree with, I think it was Mayans, Aztecs. They said that, uh, remember the whole 2012 thing? The, they said oh, that yes, it wasn't yes. actually, wasn't a death of civilization, it was going to be a death of consciousness. Right. Uh, and that universal consciousness would be the next home. Uh, right. It almost seems as if you kind of, uh, you agree with that. You say, yeah, yeah, I, you know, this generation is going to give to the next, which entitled means that the, the knowledge base gets bigger and, and people start sharing more and universal consciousness creates, right? It begins right. to evolve as we see it as, as in today's world, you know, you can, you can share knowledge with somebody all across the world now. So, right. well, well, my book, Global Brain points out that this, Ability to share knowledge worldwide has been part uh -huh. of this globe ever since life began. Because, really? Uh, yes, because life forms, bacteria in those days, uh -huh. bacteria take their genomes and if they run into trouble, if they say they find a desert where they expected to find food um, and there's no way for them to survive, they pack up their gene very neatly. Okay. And they dissolve. They dissolve themselves. They commit suicide by dissolving. Okay. But the okay. gene packet they left behind is a warning to other genes, don't go here. This is don't a bad place. Gotcha. Right. Um, gotcha. But also, genes manage through a whole bunch of devices to take little genetic snippets and spread them around. All kinds of other bacteria will adopt yeah. those genetic snippets. And those genetic snippets can travel worldwide. Even before there were aircraft, they could travel worldwide. There's, you know, yeah. the wind that they the could travel on. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, even for birds, when there were only bacteria, and that's all there were. Really? So okay. this global brain has been going on for a long time. But the internet, the internet came into use in the 1970s. It was invented by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. I had. This is going to sound crazy. I had a unique privilege. Um, by 1988, I had run my own company for 15 years, and all of a sudden, and I needed to get out because I'd learned everything that I felt I could learn in the music industry, and I had, was halfway through writing my first book, The Lucifer Principle. Okay. They signed yeah, a big yeah. expedition into the forces of history, and okay. all of a sudden, I got sick, very sick, and nobody could, no doctor could figure out what was wrong with me. And finally, I walked into my office and said to the staff, I don't know what is happening to me, but I could be dying, but I'm giving you the business, and I'll be okay. gone in two weeks. And okay. I spent the next 15 years in bed, and I spent yeah. five of those years, two weeks to speak, and two weeks to have another person in the room with me. It yeah. was sheer yeah. hell and sheer torture. But I had envied the college professors who had access to the Internet in the 1970s. They still could use yeah, and in 1983, a bright entrepreneur had gotten those of us in the record industry who were willing to pay for a subscription onto the Internet. Okay. And it changed everything for us. So by 1988, I'd been on the Internet for five years. Okay. And the only way I could exist as a human, because I was stripped of every aspect of my humanity, 
-hmm. And the only way I could be human was on the Internet. So I had two computers set up next to my bed with a keyboard and a little Chinese box that allowed me to control both both computers from one keyboard and one monitor. And I went out on the Internet and I started to make friends and I founded two international scientific groups while I was too weak to talk. And I wrote three books. Um, So so the Internet, which does yoke us globally together, became something I was forced to be reborn on in 1988. And most people didn't get the Internet until around 1995. So that put me a long time ahead of most people. But look what I was doing. I was on a philosophy of history group based in Siberia. Yeah. (laughs) I ran uh, a group called the Group Selection Squad that changed the way we think in evolutionary biology. And that had members from uh, Israel, um, Holland, um, and Australia, um, plus, plus the United States. In other yeah, words, yeah. And, and I was introduced to a guy in Moscow at the Kelgis Institute of Applied Mathematics of the Russian Academy of Sciences, Pavel Karakin, and we became collaborators. Um, he's a theoretical physicist and mathematician. And okay. so I wrote my theoretical physics paper with him. How okay. is that for global reach? Um, that's... that's, that's... That's yeah. Great. yeah, I could yeah, not man. walk. I could not walk further than my bathroom. I could not even yeah. walk as far as my own kitchen, and yet I, I was I heard, dealing I with Siberia and Moscow. I read somewhere you were also a professor or a, um, a core uh, faculty member. I, I was I was named a visiting scholar at the graduate psychology yes. department at NYU, despite the fact yes. that I never got any of my graduate degrees. It's the graduate. I never showed up once in person. Yeah, Yeah, right. And I was I was named a core faculty member at the Graduate Institute in Meriden, Connecticut. So plus I've been either published or I've given lectures at scholarly conferences on 12 different scientific fields. Um, The power of the mind over the body. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So plus, you know, I I science was my life. It was my life when I was 10. And it's been my life ever since. But so I wanted to understand were, the gods inside from the point of view of science. And that means not just that understanding them. That was yeah. your original god. Your original right. god was the science god. Let me follow this yeah. one. Right. So uh, in that science quest, you, you, you said in, in the very beginning, and I said that I wanted to touch back on this real quick. Do you see yourself, and, and this is a two-part question, so bear with me here. First question being, do you see yourself as a visionary or as someone who can see things in ways that others cannot ahead of time? And the reason I ask that is because you talked about dark energy almost 40 years before it was ever even proven. And if this was the medieval times or if this was, you know, uh, 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 the 10 hundreds or 1492 or something, you'd be hailed as a, a prophet. You'd be hailed as a as some kind of uh, what do they call those um, uh, oracles? Uh, what is that? I mean, how does well, that? It's, it's a little I, weird. I have been working with the eleventh president of India, Dr. A. P. J. Kalam, who was the only trusted politician in Southeast Asia, who was a superstar. <laughs> wow! And we were working for four years together on harvesting solar power in space and transmitting it down to Earth. 
Well, he and I were both at a conference in San Diego once. And because my relationship had soured with the intercessor, the person who hooked us together, I thought yeah. Dr. Kalam didn't want to see me. Um, and yeah. then uh, the head of the National Right. So the head of the National Space Society came to me and said, Dr. Kalam wants to see you. Okay. I can't resist that. So I got yeah. into line. People, you know, a Pez dispenser? Yep. Um, yep. So yep. people yep. were lined up to go see Dr. Kalam, and they were going through security, like, like the candies in a Pez dispenser. And I got yeah. on the line with everybody else because Dr. Kalam had summoned me. Um, and when I got upstairs to Dr. Kalam's suite, um, he was talking to some very important people, and I did not want to interrupt. So I tried to find a seat up against the wall where I wouldn't interrupt them. And all of a sudden, Dr. Kalam's eyes met mine. And it was as if we had known each other since first grade. And his face lit up, and he left the important people that he was with, and he came over. I don't know how he recognized me, Twiz. He had never seen me before. And, and, and now there's protocol when you're with a former yeah. head of state. And there are certain yeah. things you're allowed to do and certain things you're not allowed to do. And one right. of the things you're right. not allowed to do is hug that person, hug that former head of state. So Dr. Kalam came over to me and gave me a great big hug. Then he dismissed the important people that he'd been meeting yeah. with. And he got all excited. He had, he, one day I had sent him a copy of my book, The Genius of the Beast, A Radical Revision of Capitalism. And I had done it as a courtesy. I knew that it was going to end up in his slush pile and that his slush pile was four feet high. Um, and I got an email from Dr. Kalam personally. He's not supposed to do that. Yeah. That's against protocol. Yeah. And he said, I sat down at four in the afternoon to read your book and stopped at 10 o'clock so that I could email you. And he said, it's absolutely brilliant. And he said, in 10 different ways, it's visionary. It's a visionary creation. Yeah. So yeah. Dr. Kalam, in this meeting in San Diego at the hotel suite, said that he had something he wanted me to read. It was the introduction to a book, an introduction he okay. had just written. And so okay. I read it. And Dr. Kalam stood this far away from me. He stood less than two feet away from me. Okay. And his eyes were locked on my eyes. And I could see what he was looking for. He wanted to see if I lit up with the recognition of what he had written as visionary, the way he had lit up when he had read my work. And my face did light up because it was fucking visionary. And then I realized suddenly what he meant by visionary, that there are some people who can see things that other people can't see. Um, it's like that Elon Musk experience 15 years ago when Elon hadn't gotten anything off the ground. New right then and there. Right. It's, it's yeah. like that meeting it's like in the limousine with Rufus's manager, um, yeah. with Shaka Khan's manager, telling him, if you do this, I will deliver you a star. Now, Twiz, I've only said that twice in my life. And both times it's come true. He was right. Yeah, I've only said it because I know it. So how you know these things at a gut level, I do not know. And then there was the night, it's a long story, we'll have to cover it some other time if you want. Most definitely, was, yeah, most definitely. Right, when I was with Michael Jackson and um, he had decided to cancel his tour and I was asked to fly to California immediately because they said I was the only person that he would listen to. And when I was talking to Michael Jackson in a darkened dressing trailer, I had a vision and it's the only 
visual vision I've ever had. And right. I saw Michael's ribs as golden gates. And I saw those golden gates open. And I saw 10,000 kids inside of Michael's chest, his kids. So yeah. where these visions come from, I do not know. And there have only Unless been... Unless you're on just some good damn acid at that time. Yeah. So in my case, I probably only had about five of them um, in my life. But every single one of them so far has come true. Man, that's that's good. You know, I mean, half of me, half of me is torn and half of me is rejoicing. Let me put it that way. Well, there's uh, another know, there's another tiny answer to the question. And that and I just realized this two months ago. Because other kids would never allow me to do anything they could do. They didn't want yeah. to have anything to do with me. They forced me to do the things that they could not do. And so in turn, you, you soaked up knowledge they'll never have. Right. And, that, and it was a tremendous benefit to me. They did me a tremendous service. It was painful at the time. Yeah. So was having chronic fatigue syndrome, being in bed for 15 years. But those experiences all proved to be incredibly valuable. Well, you know, there's that old mind, what is it, the old saying that uh, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, right? Yes, so exactly. If, if you take that philosophy, then you see everything as a blessing. You see everything as a learning lesson. You see everything as an opportunity to grow and become better, right? Yes, and exactly. And ultimately, human, human psyche, like our quest is perfection. We, we are achieving perfection, whether it's in our hearts, in our minds you know, dreams, whatever it may be, the quest to always want the best, to have the best, to be the best. That's just a part of human nature. So, right. yeah. So real quickly with uh, just a few, about five, 10 minutes left here, uh, you know, Madonna, Michael Jackson, I mean, you, you, you're, you're naming off names that are just, wow. And, and I, I want to ask Harry Humongous quickly before we exit out of it. Okay, or not Harry Howard Humongous. I don't know what right. Right. Howard Humongous. I want to ask Howard Humongous, what does it take to find your God? That's a very good question, Twiz, and I'm not sure I can answer it. First of oh, all, no. first of all, we only see each other, we only see ourselves. Okay. in the mirrors of each other's eyes. Okay. When you're on stage and those gods inside of you come alive and take you over, it's because of the attention of that audience. Mm -hmm. You mm -hmm. are seeing an aspect of yourself you never get to see in the eyes of others in the most real way possible. Yes. Yes. Often when you need to make a decision, you don't know it, but you've already made the decision, and but you can't articulate it. Right. So when you go talk to a friend, the value of the conversation is usually not so much the advice the friend gives you as the opportunity the friend gives you to articulate the answer huh. that you have already arrived at on uh, the level of the cells below the floorboards of the cell. Yeah. On yeah. a nonverbal level. Yeah. So um, to find the guts inside of you, you need others who will encourage you, but but then twas look at me. When I was a kid, no, I was about to say when I was a kid, I had nobody to reflect me. Because I had no friends and I had no parents, right? Yeah. And but I was reflected in books. Look what reading Albert Einstein mm -hmm. did for me mm -hmm. to change my yeah. life. Yeah. And that's 
others. That's yeah. other people. Yeah. We only yeah. grow on the trellises of others. We yeah. find our unique selves by growing on the trellises of others. Um, but it helps, you know, John Mellencamp could not have answered that question about the catcher's commercial alone. Yeah, he, he, needed, needed, he needed Yeah, he needed me as a mirror. He needed me to reaffirm what his role had become solely because of who he is, solely because of the gods inside of him, what role he has in life. Uh, Mr. Bloom, I will tell you this much. I hope that my gods bring me my Mr. Bloom. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I, 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 I am thrilled. I am. I am absolutely thrilled that I got to spend this time with you. I think it has made, it's made me a better person because, you know, um, coming into this interview, I was like, uh, you know, am I, am I worthy? Am I qualified? Am I, am I going to do good enough? But, you know, you go through all of the pre-trial right. things that, that we go through and you've helped me, um, you've helped me grow with this interview. And by doing such, you've allowed me to, to, to become, you know, a better person today. And That's so I thank you for that because isn't that our objective? You yeah, know, I thank to, you for that. Because, <laughs> because just like you, just like everybody listening to this, there are days when I've woken up and gone, why am I here? Nobody wants me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm of value to nobody. Um, yep. And, yep. And, and my work has pulled me out of that. We all feel that way. Um, that's my music. That's yeah. my music. <laughs> right. So we all have so, to have a reason, uh, a greater meaning in our lives, something that we're aiming towards, something that is bigger than ourselves. I agree with that. I agree with that. And with that, what is your last, what is, what is the last thing? If, if, if this was the last thing anybody was to hear from you, what would it be? Since there are no gods, it is our job to do her work. Um, our job is to take our miseries, our insecurities, and our lusts and turn them into wings with which our children's children shall overcome. Um, wow. Because, because <laughs> deity, divinity, is not a thing out there in the sky divinity is an aspiration inside of us and only we can do the work that we imagine to be divine wow wow you're on you i i agree i you know i agree i read the interviews all the time kids said they always stay up and coming the best greatest whatever you know, when I read your bio, I was like, okay, great. You know, this is going to be now. I'm a firm believer. Good job. You've, you've, you've made me a believer. You are truly a visionary mind of my generation. And I am blessed to be able to spend this time. If you would ever like to do this again, please. I am, I am more than thrilled to spend another chunk of my life with you whenever you're ready. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> terrific. Um, I mean, so, Twiz, it was a pleasure to meet you. Yeah. And, uh, and do you ahead. have any books for sale right now that you're, oh, you're promoting? Oh, yes, 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 yes. This book, Einstein, Michael Jackson, and Me, A Search yeah. for Soul on the Power Fits of Rock and Roll. Um, there you go. Which uh, all kinds of astonishing things have been said about it. Um, yes. Freddie DeMann, yeah. the manager of Madonna, Michael Jackson, says, amazing, amazing, the writing is revelatory. So yeah. hopefully, yeah. if you get to read this book, it'll change your life. Hopefully. I would love to. I hope to one day. That's, that's for sure. As soon as I can get my hands on a copy, I'm definitely going to read it. And then we're going to have a conversation about it. <laughs> okay, terrific. Well, Twiz, it's a pleasure right, to meet Bloom. you. 
Yeah, man. Same to you. And of course, I'm going to get you a copy of all this and this will be on the station and, and whatnot. And I'm also going to just among my personal fans and followers because I've thoroughly enjoyed this one. So uh, if, if, if and I will Facebook and Twitter it to my to my faithful 15,000. I, I appreciate you so very much, Mr. Boom. Thank you. And thank you for making my mind a smarter place today. It was blessed. I love it. Thank you. Have a good night, Twiz. You too, Mr. Bloom. You too.